Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today on the show, we're going to talk to a champion of industry within industry, which, as I've talked about on this show, is not nearly a common enough phenomenon, but when we find one, we definitely want to feature them and we want to encourage uh, more. So today we're going to talk to a guy named Jack Ekstrom. He's the uh, VP uh, of Government Relations for Whiting Petroleum, which is a major oil company that, among other places, is doing a lot of work in Colorado, which has the potential of a fracking ban, unfortunately, coming up this uh, this fall. And I met Jack in North Dakota when I was giving a speech for the North Dakota Petroleum Council. And it was very clear that he was very outspoken. And he does uh, a certain kind of radio program where he, you know, he addresses the public's questions and in general engages people, which I think is, is great. So I thought I'd bring him on the program to talk about his experiences, his thoughts on the industry. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think, You'll learn a lot. So stay tuned. On the other side, we'll have Jack Ekstrom. Power Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now on Power Hour is Jack Ekstrom, Vice President of Government Relations at Whiting Petroleum. Jack, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you very much, Alex. It's great to be with you. It's it's great to have you. And uh, you have a radio show, too, don't you? Uh, I don't have one of my own, but I do appear uh, each month on two radio stations, one in Colorado and uh, one in North Dakota. Okay, great. And we, you and I met in North Dakota. I was speaking at the North Dakota Petroleum Council uh, event, and, and I got to meet a lot of people. And one, one group of people I met uh, was a contingent from Colorado, which is definitely one of the most important energy areas in the country, particularly right now. Uh, can you tell us about the, the situation in Colorado, both positive and negative, what, what's going on? Well, the positives uh, first, Alex. Um, we have uh, a tremendous resource um, that is becoming available to uh, uh, the American consumer because of the advances in, <laughs> excuse me, excuse me, horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. Uh, this resource, previously unavailable because it's in very tight rock uh, that is not super porous. But with advances in fracturing and uh, our ability to drill um, miles horizontally, the, <coughs> the resource is now available. So uh, the, the producing formation is the Niobrara shale. Uh, it has occasionally produced a resource in the past uh, where it was uh, accumulated in sort of classical stratigraphic traps. Um, and the source, it is the source rock uh, for crude that migrates into traps, but uh, because it's it's been packed into this 
a rather uh, uh, hard shale was previously unavailable. That's the good news. And the resource uh, is tremendous. It is, we believe, at least the equivalent of the Bakken shale in North Dakota. Now, the bad news is, <clears throat> as uh, Colorado has, I, I don't know if I should say evolved or devolved, but uh, as Colorado has moved through time, uh, we've had a lot of uh, migration inward from places with uh, uh, adverse economies like uh, uh, the difficulties in California, difficulties on the East Coast, and unfortunately, these transplants have uh, brought their politics with them. So Colorado, which used to be a solidly conservative um, resource harvesting state, has become rather blue and uh, has been, I would say, uh, influenced dramatically by transplanted uh, radical environmentalists. Uh, one of those uh, was behind some of the ballot initiatives, uh, which recently um, imposed moratoria uh, in these locations on hydraulic fracturing. This one man I'm thinking of in particular uh, was previously doing this just two years ago in Illinois, and when he moved here uh, within the last 24 months, all of a sudden, it was all about all of, quote, us, unquote, citizens mm -hmm. in Lafayette, Colorado. Um, and he's an Illinois native. He's been a, or not an Illinois native. I don't know what he's a native of. But he was previously doing this uh, uh, in an organized fashion in the Illinois state capital, and now he's transplanted himself here. So, and then, so we, we've... Just, just to make clear to, to listeners, we've got these different ballot initiatives, and um, in terms of moratoria, and what happened? Those, most of those, went against fracking, right? Yes, they did. They were in relatively small uh, communities, except for Fort Collins, not a small community, but is a obviously a college town. Colorado State University uh, is located there. Uh, the interesting thing about the Fort Collins uh, initiative was, yes, they voted for a moratorium, but they also, the city council also voted unanimously to grant an exception to the only company that's drilling there. So it's a moratorium against anyone else. And the fact is there's no one else who's interested in drilling there. So mm -hmm. it's a, I don't know if it's a moratorium on moratoria or what it is, but in any event, Alex, we have these, uh, communities like Longmont and uh, Lafayette and Louisville and Broomfield and places like that uh, where there has not been a lot of active drilling. And, of course, Boulder uh, is another one where there hasn't been a lot of drilling, but they're trying to apparently make a political statement about this activity. Of course, on the one hand, they're opposed to it, but on the other hand, of course, they're uh, consumers of oil and natural gas and all of the byproducts of that gasoline and and uh, propane and so forth so they're they're obviously trying to have uh, have it both ways <clears throat> and the industry in Colorado is been in my opinion incredibly forthcoming about the operations we have conducted literally hundreds of field tours of our operations shown reclaimed well sites uh, shown drilling rigs in action and the short duration of those operations, which are generally somewhere in the span of about uh, five to eight days. 
So while we've been forthcoming, we have this radical element that is fomenting this opposition to the industry. Got it. So we have this this enormous potential. I think most people listening and just most people following the news are, are familiar with the incredible uh, positive impact of the Bakken on North Dakota, and we've got potentially larger than that in Colorado. And of course, Californians, we have potentially much larger than that in Monterey, but we're not allowed to build anything or develop anything in California, so that's pretty much off limits. Um, and so we've got this positive potential, and then at the same time, we've got this this negative. So one thing I like to ask uh, companies or anyone who's observing is, what's the best case scenario and worst case scenario going until the end of this year? Because there's a lot of political possibility going on this fall. So what's best case scenario, worst case scenario for the rest of 2014? Indeed, there is, Indeed there is Alex. There's a tremendous uh, upside here that uh, the industry will manage to um, dramatically and handily defeat any ballot initiatives that would ban fracking or or ban uh, uh, unreasonable setbacks from occupied uh, buildings or or uh, waterways or so forth that uh, that are being considered. We don't know, of course, what's going to be on the ballot until that deadline approaches sometime in early August. Um, that is the upside: is that we're able to defeat those. Uh, the downside is that they uh, accrue a tremendous response from outside the state and a lot of out-of-state money from these organized environmental groups and individuals, people such as George Soros or Tom Steyer or any of the other um, activists who oppose uh, hydrocarbon fuels, somehow gain some traction here in spite of our best efforts. And they managed to ban fracking. I mean, that would be the worst case, because if you ban fracking, that means the end of drilling for oil and natural gas in Colorado, as we know it, because virtually every well in the last 10 years and about 90 percent of the wells in the last 50 have all been hydraulically fractured. Uh, has there been a demise of water quality? No. Has there been uh, health issues? Uh, that have been proven? No. Have there been many allegations? Of course there are because they use whatever uh, hyperbole or, or uh, in fact, hubris or drama, whatever they can drum up to oppose uh, what is essentially a basic and routine uh, manufacturing activity. So the, I think the downside is um, unlikely. Uh, Obviously, it's going to take an effort uh, on our part and on all of our parts uh, who are active in, in the oil and gas industry in the Intermountain West to stop this. A further downside would be if, if this should be successful in Colorado, the former governor of Wyoming told us that there is no question in his mind that what would happen in the not-too-distant future is that such a ban would be enacted in uh, Utah, in New Mexico, and in Montana, and obviously much stricter rules would be uh, uh, very difficult to hold back or, or stop in places like Wyoming and North Dakota that have been uh, very friendly and very accommodating uh, to the benefits of oil and gas development. So we have a potential domino effect, if you will, uh, as the dramatic downside but the upside, which we think 
is what we're going to experience is uh, a defeat, a sound defeat of these initiatives and continuing uh, business under some of the strictest rules uh, that have been enacted in any state in this country. All right. Well, at the for the, at the risk of seeming negative, I want to pursue the worst case scenario a little bit because it's it's horrifying, and it's possible. It, I mean, if you look at just things like this have happened, and and you had those ballot initiatives uh, before. What do you think are usually with anything like this? You know, whether you get the best case or the worst case or somewhere in between comes down to there usually a couple of challenges and opportunities that depending on how you handle them. That's what decides it. What do you think are the big challenges and opportunities in this upcoming battle? Well, I think the challenge for the industry, and we have uh, begun perhaps uh, a little late in the game, but we have begun nevertheless. We've begun uh, educating our employees and doing dramatic outreach into our communities, not just the oil and gas producing communities in Weld County, Colorado, or on the on the Western Slope in Grand Junction and, and in that neck of the wood. But we've begun a concentrated effort within uh, the front range communities, generally the, the metropolitan strip from Fort Collins down to Pueblo to explain uh, the activity, to equip our employees, to explain to their friends and neighbors and families, those who are information poor about exactly what this process is, how it works, how often it's been done, and the safety record involved. <clears throat> we have uh, run these sessions called our ambassador series, not just within Whiting, but within the Colorado Oil and Gas Association so that member companies and non-member companies alike have the ability to send their employees to these instructive classes about how to engage the public, how to engage the media, how to explain what we do in a non-confrontational and, uh, in fact, objective manner. So that's some of what we've done. Uh, we have been doing outreach to media. In fact, what we are engaged in here today is part and parcel of what Whiting and our, our uh, peer companies believe is an important effort to take the time and the effort to explain what is at stake, why it's important, and how the benefits accrue, not just to these local areas where the drilling is taking place, but to the economy uh, in general across the, the entire North American uh, community. We are reversing our dependence on imports from hostile countries, uh, Venezuela, uh, the Middle East. We are producing it here. Uh, in an environmentally safe and sound manner, where in those places we have no guarantees that that's what's happening. So the best thing that we could do, in our opinion, is produce it here, create the jobs here, generate the tax revenue here, um, and do it in the most environmentally safe and sound way that is possible, unlike uh, second and third world countries. So that, to us, that is those are the opportunities. Um, the the reverse of that would be to shut this industry down, lose the jobs, lose the tax revenue, become even more dependent, as we've seen uh, what can happen with uh, Russia and Mr. Putin. Uh, now 
Eastern Europe, in fact, all of Europe, is more uh, at his mercy than they probably have been since uh, the fall of the uh, the Soviet Empire. And is that a good thing? Of course not. Uh, should we be pursuing uh, goals that reduce that dependence? Of course we should. So that's why we think our our activities, not just here in Colorado, not just in North Dakota, but in Texas, in the Gulf of Mexico, potentially in California, offshore California, offshore the East Coast, are all measures that make a lot of sense uh, for our economy, for our energy security, and for the security of the free world. Um, one one challenge in terms of uh, you know, that any of these projects is going to deal with, and I think this is the, the biggest one here, is just the environmentalist movement. You mentioned different components of it, such as those funded by Steyer and Soros. But in any case, you've got a mass you know, a mass movement or at least a massively powerful movement that has a lot of experience attacking things like this and has had a lot of success in attacking like this. And one thing that I've been harping on with the industry, and I think you've probably read my essay, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, is that the uh, opponents of the fossil fuel industry try to position you as like the tobacco industry you're, you're, or even the heroin industry. You're selling this self-destructive addiction that's ruining our plan and depleting all our resources. And when I look at some of the websites, uh, like I'm looking at right now, Coloradans for Responsible Energy Development, which is sponsored, it says, by Anna Darko and by uh, Noble. Um, and by Whiting Petroleum. And by Whiting. Okay, well, then I can, then I can take this to task a little bit. It, it seems to have a lot of good information about, you know, refuting some of the fallacies, but it also seems defensive. Like, I don't see anything about, you know, if I was on a solar website, I'd see a lot about how amazing solar energy. If I was on a computer website, I'd see a lot about how amazing computer energy. Here, it's mostly trying to dispel myths, but doesn't say anything really positive about oil and all the ways in which it benefits our lives. So it seems like the best case scenario is people, it'll be people are arguing to zero, you know, they start out with a concern and then you try to reassure them, but it doesn't seem like it's going to rally anyone. What would you say to that? Alex, your template um, is being disseminated even as we speak uh, today in this, uh, in this conversation. I have uh, dramatically advanced the notion of the value that we bring uh, the incredible, uh, <clears throat> and dramatic uh, lifestyle uh, opportunities that we have and that we have experienced as hydrocarbon fuels have uh, pervaded our energy supply. Um, in fact, I made the argument the other day on uh, a radio show that I was on in North Dakota where <clears throat> the caller um, asserted that this was nothing more than an infomercial for the oil and gas industry. And I said, well, Perhaps you may view it that way, but in fact, you are calling me and I am sitting in a studio in uh, pleasant conditions when it's incredibly cold outside, as are you, caller, because of the availability of uh, reasonably priced oil and natural gas. If we did not have that, you and I would be unable to have this conversation and you would be, you and I would be living, if we were fortunate, we'd be living like the Amish who choose to live that way. And there's nothing wrong with that if you choose to make that uh, lifestyle, your lifestyle. But I happen to choose not to do that, and so do you. 
So you could have the Sierra Club on or the Environmental Defense Fund, and what you'd get is a lot of hyperbole, and you'd get a lot of <clears throat> uh, propaganda about how bad we are. But in fact, what I will tell you is what we deliver, what it costs you, uh, what that gives to you in your lifestyle, in your clothing, in your food availability, in refrigeration, in heat, and uh, all of the amenities that we enjoy. So I would say to you about this story that you have, um, which, in fact, I have right in front of me now, the moral case for fossil fuels and the key to winning hearts and minds, Eric DeLay, an associate of mine who had dinner with us that evening, and I have been disseminating this wherever we go. In fact, as you recall, I ordered hundreds of copies of your book to disseminate to our employees at Whiting so that they could carry this story about the moral case for fossil fuels as well. So have we been slow on the draw? Yes. Have we, have we removed the weapon from its holster? Yes, we have. All right. Well, I'm still, you know, I'm an impatient guy. That's why I wrote that essay. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. <laughs> but one needs to be impatient here because the other side has a very, very large uh, first mover advantage in terms of taking uh, the high ground. But I, I should say that I, I am certainly uh, grateful for you. And even when we first met and when you, you had never read any of my stuff, you told me that about this radio program. And I, I think I said, you know, this is exactly the sort of thing that industry people should be doing. They should be getting on the radio. They should be engaging with people. And, and you obviously had positive enthusiasm, uh, which I think is important. Uh, I do think that, um, like, if I, you know, just going on the web pages, Whiting, Anadarko, it's, there's all, I mean, in, in, in our view, ultimately, there are, you know, we rank all communication from negative five to five, because every time you open your mouth, it can be, it can easily be, make things worse rather than better. And part of what me getting to five is, is being able to do two things. One is inspire people about the benefits, and two is reassure people about the risks. And they, they always go together because if you're not inspired about the benefits, you're not going to really look to be reassured about the risks. I mean, if you think that something is worthless and it has some risk, you'll just assume, okay, well, it's not worth doing. And just being on the websites, honestly, I don't feel inspired, but I know just based on what you said, you know, that would inspire someone much more. And if I tell someone, hey, look, here's a rock, here's this worthless rock. What if someone found out how to how to use this rock to charge your iPhone. Wouldn't that be amazing? Well, that's what we call fracking. Like that's, you guys are exactly. doing these amazing things. So my question to all the leadership is, where are they? Let's, let's get them in front and center. Let's not just be um, on, on the defensive. And that was my purpose in writing that article. That was my purpose in working with companies that eventually, we, if we telescope five years, people will think of oil as this, amazing product and they'll think of the oil industry as an amazing technology industry that turns things that intrinsically have no value into into everything in the world that has value agreed alex i i i would tell you that the industry has been in in a mode that i can only describe as um uh well it's a combination of being hunkered down and quizzical the, <laughs> the 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 general attitude in the, among the scientists that do the work that we do is that the value is self-evident to them 
as finance people, as engineers, as geologists, the product is produced, the public benefits, it should be self-evident. Well, in the face of this onslaught of negative energy, they're kind of flummoxed by the idea that, well, people really don't get this, do they? They, they understand the, the focus on gasoline prices because they're on every corner. And when the gasoline prices are all the same, uh, the public observes that uh, it thinks that prices are fixed. And when the prices are different from station to station, the complaint is, well, one of them's gouging us because the other guy's selling it for less. So it's kind of a no-win situation because these guys are all very dedicated business people who focus on doing their business and doing it right and uh, being environmentally sensitive and following the rules and doing things the way they should. And and when they encountered all of this uh, uh, opposition and public berating and flaying of the industry, they, they kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, why is this happening? Don't they understand it? We have a, <clears throat> we have a gentleman from uh, India who is in our environmental health and safety uh, operation here. And they are, they are typically uh, very objective and, and uh, in assessing pluses and minuses in almost everything they do. And he looks at me with this quizzical look on his face and says, don't they understand? Don't they understand? He's, he's, he's uh, moved here from the Indian subcontinent. He said, I don't understand why they don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're, if you're fed one line of, of uh, information uh, and the other side being our side is not responding Obviously, the, the, the message is very one-sided and easily absorbed by people that are information poor. So it is our job to make people understand that what they're hearing is more of a, almost a religion about anti-development and <clears throat> we are violating Spaceship Earth versus quality of life and these products were put here for the use and benefit of men. So it's, it seems obvious, but we have to continue to tell that story and tell it louder and more frequently than we ever have. So that, that, that's kind of, uh, my view of it, uh, at present. Yeah. One part of me, have you ever read Atlas Shrugged? I'm curious. Uh, of course I have. Okay. Well, I think one of the things that I, I've been called John Galt by the way. Okay, well, I'm not uh, going to I'm not going to appropriate that name to you. But. By 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 a lady who bears a striking resemblance to Dagny Taggart. Man, I, I got to go to Colorado and, and meet this person. You need to meet this lady, you really do. Okay, well, we'll we'll we'll, we'll set it up after the call. We don't need to negotiate it now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's <laughs> I once met a I once this is just a random story. I don't know if I've told this on the program before, but um I once met a guy who was in ethanol and he was, he was just bragging about how great his ethanol was da, 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 and it's higher octane. And to anyone who doesn't know anything about fuel, that sounds like, Oh, that's the decisive thing. The only thing that matters in fuel is octane, uh, not energy density or anything like that or corrosiveness. And he, anyway, he, he, uh, and I asked him how many, well, how much in subsidies do you get? And he said, none, you know, we can sell it for $2 a gallon without 
subsidies and and I thought and he said so why they should just use us to solve all the world's energy problems and I said well where do you get the ethanol from and he says well we get it from waste alcohol from beer and I said well I really hope we don't drink that much beer where we're going to get all of our ethanol from waste alcohol from beer and anyway that guy's name was John Galt <laughs> I, I did not think it was appropriate okay well anyway I uh, know <laughs> anyway um so just a thing about atlas shrugged that many things uh have influenced me about that book but one is that just the importance of just just to yourself as somebody in industry just to anyone who's in industry to to truly appreciate in a concrete way the value of what you do and the virtue of what you do. So what it means for a person's life that energy is cheap enough that he can have his first refrigerator versus not. And then the ingenuity that goes into taking a lump of coal or, you know, natural gas, which used to explode and kill people all the time and turn it into the electricity that charges an iPhone or that keeps a respirator on. And that, that that's something beautiful that, that, we should ascribe morality and virtue to, and that people should appreciate. And even if they're not under attack, it's valuable for them and their work to know the meaning and purpose of their work. And it's easy because they're so focused just on doing the job to forget that. But I think so when you talk about the ambassador program, I hope one benefit they get out of that is to just appreciate their work more because viewing your work as having a purpose is one of the key elements and enjoying it. Indeed. And in fact, in our ambassador's handbook, which I am writing uh, and hope to have delivered within the month, there is an entire section on and in takeaways on what our work means to the quality of life, not just for ourselves, but for every person uh, on the globe, in fact. And in fact, as you know, Alex, the quality of life of some of the poorest among us is a quality of life that kings and emperors uh, in not too many centuries back would have thought uh, is from another world. The quality of life is so great because you are actually able to transport yourself at speeds that were incomprehensible uh, just 150 to 200 years ago. It's, it's an incredible feat uh, of human achievement that we have advanced this far this fast and in fact the progress is accelerating exponentially when we used to develop things over five years we thought it was really fast now those same kinds of uh, leaps in technology are taking place within a year or within months not not uh, decades yeah i think they would think it was another dimension or even beyond you know whatever faith religion they had it was even beyond the the possibility that they could conceive of in terms of the, the uh the supernatural I, I like to think about i think I, this is in my book and in, in philosophies improve the planet but just the idea of bringing someone from an environment 300 years ago and asking him who has a better environment you or us he wouldn't think it was a question exactly exactly it's uh it's, it's a daunting task, however, to convince people who believe with all of their heart and soul that this planet upon which we uh, thrive and survive is, is being demised when, in fact, it's becoming cleaner and the footprints are getting smaller and smaller, but they refuse to believe the good news. 
and they refuse to enjoy the quality of life that is available to them simply because they have been convinced by <clears throat> people with a different agenda that we are on the we are on the road to perdition and hell and it it, it is in fact untrue i mean i think you 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 referenced earlier uh, some of the what we can call fundamentalists, environmentalists, or deep greens, or whatever you want to call them. Um, and you mentioned the idea of spaceship Earth, and and I think you get that that there is a real philosophy that says that man is bad. That is, he's not the object of value, and he's not the source of value. And those people are very hard to convince, but I think that the the majority of people are people who have been infected by that view to one degree or another and don't know and really think that in fighting hydrocarbons in some way they're 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 doing the right thing by man and i think that's where the opportunity is to show people no look at what we're actually doing is making light we're taking you know we're taking something worthless we're turning it into something valuable we're making the planet a better place for human beings and i think that that's where the opportunity is not with the bill mckibbins uh, that is where the opportunity is. I, I happen to believe personally, Alex, that these are people that have found themselves to be at odds with society at large, who basically don't like themselves and don't like other people. They, they, they have almost no sense of community. They, <clears throat> They're they're like born rebels. They're born, uh, I guess in the old days you would have called them againers. They're against everything that pretty much benefits uh, uh, the greater cause of humanity. They they want to be in charge. They have a different vision. They are they have convinced themselves that <clears throat> we are on the wrong path, and the path that we need to be on is the path that they dictate. They are, they are not in favor of freedom or individuality. They are in favor of conformity and unhappiness. And if you are not in, on their bandwagon, you are not cool. You don't get it. You're uh, out of step because they have the vision. And if you don't get it, uh, there, there's obviously something wrong with you. And in fact, these are the people that are aberrant in their beliefs and are are operating uh, contrary to the interests of the vast majority of humanity. I'm intrigued particularly by the first part of what you said, so I'll ask you to elaborate on it, even if it upsets some people. The, the, uh, your observation that the, the deep greens of the fundamentalists are unhappy and that they don't tend to like themselves, they don't tend to like other people. How did you come to that conclusion? Because I, I have a similar conclusion, but I don't hear people say it that often. Well, I've, I've come to that conclusion because the, the, the view of conventional life, or I guess they might call it conformity to norms, makes them unhappy. It, they are unable to set themselves apart or self-actualize in the absence of being different or being uh, contrary or being outstanding in some oppositional way. Um, you, you see these people, it, it's, the, it's, the, it's the need to occupy that Occupy movement 
to me was symbolic of this mindset. They don't know what they're opposed to, except whatever is there that the majority uh, generally conforms to. Uh, Occupy Wall Street. Well, we had a movement that was, um, I believe, it was Occupy Longmont. I mean, Occupy Longmont, Colorado. I mean, supposedly the the uh, the status quo or the the uh, the mainstream of life in Longmont was totally unacceptable to people who clearly did not live there, but they were oppositional to the norm. So what does that make? I mean, clearly it makes them in my mind, and this may be upsetting to people. It makes me, it makes them abnormal. Uh, They cannot, they cannot get on board with what is generally an acceptable and conventional way of life. They have to find fault with that and find reasons to oppose it. Occupy wall street. uh, Those people were really not about much of anything when they were asked what they were opposed to, they were opposed to Wall Street. What are they in favor of? They are in favor of something that is not Wall Street. So it is opposition for the sake of opposition and for the sake of standing out and being uh, perhaps 15 minutes of fame or I'm against whatever everybody else is for because I'm different and I feel like I need to uh, give voice to my singularity. and that that's troubling. It obviously hasn't had much of an impact because the Occupy movement is pretty much dead. We had it in front of the Capitol in Colorado, and eventually they just <clears throat> said, you people don't need to be doing this, and actually fouling the, the Capitol grounds with trash and litter and uh, uh, human waste and so forth. Isn't that always the uh, case? It, and it, it pretty much is. Um, my my thought has always been, if you don't like things the way they are, you should uh, create an opposition movement and vote and vote to change it in a in a reasonable and rational fashion. But that clearly does not work because they are such a minority. They have to do this in an activist fashion. And very much of the opposition and the, the movement and the funding for this movement comes not from... Uh, opposition that that um or lawsuits based on uh the fundamentals of a case it's based on technicalities that's typically how they win they you're supposed to give 30 days notice for a public input and you didn't give 30 days notice or 30 days was not adequate it should have been 60 days so they sue and their cohorts in government uh enable them and uh settle and they win the lawsuit and they go on to another lawsuit and lawsuits uh, ad infinitum. And that's how they continue to survive. There was a gentleman who wrote a series for the Sacramento Bee uh, back around 2000 or 2001, uh, an extensive series on the organized environmental movement and the Chardonnay parties on the top of the St. Francis Hotel and in San Francisco on how they should plan this and plan that. And <clears throat> unfortunately, his editors at the Sacramento Bee uh, did not take kindly to his exposure of uh, some of their obviously uh, friends and cohorts, and he lost his job and has not really been heard of since uh, in any kind of environmental or uh, uh, journalistic enterprise, I should say. Do you know where we can find this article? uh, 
you could you could Google uh, and I believe um, environmental um, uh, organized environmental movement in the Sacramento Bee. Uh, I would suggest Googling it. I have copies of it here somewhere in my office. I'd be happy to send it to you, but it's a, I believe it's a seven part series. Uh, oh, I, mean, I, would perhaps, love, I would love to read that. I, it's not coming up when I search that on, oh, environmental organizations let me, let me are now see if big I can business. Find it. If I can find it, I'll send it to you, Alex. I think, I think um, I see it. Either the link or, uh, or the, uh, copies of it. Yeah, it's called the Sacramento Bee Expose. Environmental organizations are now big business, and it's it's this five day series. Yeah, I'm fascinated to, to look at it. Uh, with the environment, uh, one one more because I'm really fascinated by this article, and and as part of my motivation here, I'm writing my book, and part of the book, part of what the book does, I think that's unusual is I think it carefully walks people step by step through how much their thinking has been contaminated by the idea that man is bad. And even a lot of mainstream people who don't think they've picked that up, they don't even know that that's at the core of the so-called environmentalist movement, that, that that we've all picked it up. So I'm really interested in, you know, you've had so many experiences with these. One aspect of it that I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on is that they there's this element of alienation that you mentioned, where they don't fit in, they're abnormal in that sense. But I think in an, sometimes it's healthy to be abnormal, but in an unhealthy sense, and they don't often, I think productively, especially they don't feel productive. They can't really perform in that world. So why, you know, why not say that all the productive people are, are evil, but at the same time, they claim to be these individualists and unique, and yet they completely band together in these collectives and all their arguments are amount to, Hey, all the collective scientists agree with us and they'll pretty much engage in any dishonesty to uh to, to further that claim indeed there's a what i would call uh uh the conformity of abnormality um there's a there's a book that's coming out by a gentleman named greg gutfeld who you may or may not be familiar with he's uh, one of the co-hosts of the five on uh, on fox news and he talks about um the environmental uh, movement, and he talks about uh, what it's like in the White House in this this uh, global warming uh, movement and the cap and trade and all of these ginning up of these issues. And he, he equates it to the faculty lounge at a university and the uh, the principal or the head of the department is the president and everybody else is all really cool because they all agree on all of this stuff and it's really cool to do that. And if you don't agree with it, you're an outcast and you're not cool. And I think that pretty much captures the essence of this particular administration and its view of this issue. It's cool to be an environmentalist and it's uncool to be in favor of development and in favor of uh, providing a, a, a comfortable and reasonably priced uh, lifestyle for most people. They'd rather be this this elitist uh, environmental uh, uh, activist uh, where all of the cool people really are. And that I think that resonates. I, I, I can see how um, this group of people thinks that they know the science is settled. All of those arguments are over. And if you don't agree with that, you're some kind of an anachronism and, and you're living in the, in the dark ages. And that's simply wrong. 
Yeah, I mean, in the broad sense of the science of what benefits human life, it is certainly settled that using fossil fuels makes you live and not using fossil fuels makes you die. That That's settled. Um, the rest of this stuff is, is uh, a Well, you know, story. pretty much... Pretty much being birthed into this world is going to make you die. Um, it's pretty much inevitable. As you know, nobody gets out of this alive. Well, so far. <laughs> so far, correct. I'm not, I'm not ruling it out yet, no. <laughs> anyway. Uh, you, are, you are an optimist. No, I'm just uh, not, not thinking about it at the moment too much. Um, all right, let's see. So yeah, that that was that was a little bit of a tangent, um, but it's a tangent that I wanted to uh, investigate because sure. I, I really found your your experience on those um, interesting. So let, let's go back to as we we just have a couple of minutes left. What sure. what you think that uh, you know the industry can do, and then what do you think uh, citizens can do to help in Colorado, but also in the the fights for energy around the country. I think that industry needs to, and and not just the oil and gas industry, it is industries that are relocating back into the United States because of the availability of reasonably priced energy. Manufacturers are coming back to the United States. We're seeing growth in what was formerly uh, referred to as Rust Belt territory. Uh, I think those businesses need to give voice to the reasons that they're back uh, and people can understand the benefits of reasonably priced energy and how it translates to jobs and uh, refreshed infrastructure and prosperity for people that have been in the lower ranges of the economic strata, how reasonably priced energy impacts those at the lower end of the economic spectrum the most because they're not having to make choices about food and heat or food and uh, cooling in, in uh, the dire straits of, of uh, uh, the heat of summer. You have, a, you have an ability to uh, ease the, the highs and lows in their lives because they can afford this. That's what energy development and energy production in this country does. It delivers... Um, a, a quality of life that is affordable. You can afford perhaps to drive your car to places where you couldn't have afforded to do so before. And it is this lower half of the economic strata that stands to benefit the most. It, it, it is truly aggravating to hear people who <clears throat> develop things for the benefit of society be called rapacious or they're predatory when in fact the people that they're helping the most are the people that have the, that experience the most dire of economic consequences when there are shortages or when there are restrictions. It's that kind of freedom that allows those people to rise up the economic ladder and live a better quality of life. To me, the, the anti-development people are the people who are preying on those who can least afford it and, and like to have them as in fact pets or or subjects that they can dole out their their benefits to uh, and and thus buy their votes. It's it's tragic that they're really that these people are not really in favor of freedom of choice. They're in favor of servitude uh, to them so that they can 
feel good about themselves for doling out these benefits that they have. It is, it is the worst kind of, uh, of public policy to to try to dictate what these people are allowed to have and what they aren't allowed what they aren't allowed to have. Uh, freedom of choice is always the best course, and reasonably priced energy provides better choices and a bigger variety of choices than any other uh, alternative. So in terms of the, the listener of this show, in, in a sentence or two, what should he do? I, I, I have heard and I continue to believe that taking your story to elected officials makes a difference. But I would also say that opposing these kinds of uh, rank uh, advocacy for constriction of supply, constriction of choice, uh, is something that we all must be engaged in. We have to take the battle to the people that, that will continue to distort and continue to uh, uh, mislead the public about the value of reasonably priced energy from coal, from nuclear, from oil, from natural gas, from hydroelectric. Who can complain about a dam that harnesses nature's uh, water power to deliver electricity to people that need it? It it baffles me that we have these <clears throat> so-called environmentalists who want to dis dismantle the dams that we have in place that provide electricity to rural areas that uh, in other in other times were unable to develop their resources and unable to support uh, communities and life in their locales because there was no power or there was no uh, uh, electricity. It 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 seems counterintuitive to me that you would want to do that, but uh, there are those who uh, think that that's progress when it, what it's really stepping back in time and becoming uh, less progressive. Well, one thing I appreciate about all of your comments is that your focus is always on human life. And that's really the problem with the other side and even with mainstream thinking is that people are not thinking carefully about what's the big picture of what will benefit human life. And they're all, in many cases, they're thinking about human life is not something we should be so concerned with. Human be life is not such a good force. And that's where you get something like a hydroelectric dam, which says, look, man shouldn't be manipulating his environment so much you shouldn't interfere with free-flowing rivers and you'll say well no if you take a two-year-old child you know that's going to affect his life if you don't allow yourself to harness a river and they're ultimately not as concerned about the two-year-old child as as in the you know million-year-old river flowing without any human uh impact so I'm, I'm glad that you're out there and in public giving a humanist view and i want to thank you for coming on the program it was my pleasure, Alex, anytime, and uh, I wish you good luck, and we will continue to spread the word here in Colorado and elsewhere. All right. Thanks to Jack Ekstrom for coming on the show. Uh, I, I really enjoyed what he said uh, about just his analysis of environmentalists, particularly because he's been dealing with them for decades. So this is not just somebody who reads the paper, but someone who deals with them over and over and over and tries to reason with them and sees sees what happens when he tries to reason with them. So he just now 
this doesn't mean everyone who calls himself an environmentalist falls in this category, but it does mean that the general uh, establishment uh, of environmentalism, which places what they call the environment, which really means the rest of nature, not human beings, above human beings, and that, that has all sorts of negative uh, psychological aspects, and most importantly, it has all, all sorts of negative consequences on on human beings. Uh, so uh, I really appreciated that. Uh, I'll just say Jack said that they ordered a couple hundred copies of Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet, and if you're in the industry, or even if you're not, you, you should uh, consider doing that. You can get you can get a limited number of copies on Amazon. We we lowered the price to five fifty a book, and you can get it on Amazon Prime. So you can try that, or if you want bulk copies, just go to industrialprogress.com/store. Industrialprogress.com/store. But you know, companies are investing lots and lots of money on what they call ambassadorship initiatives, you know, consulting, communications, and that's definitely that's definitely needed. That money can be incredibly uh, well invested, in, and that's certainly something that I I do with companies. But I always tell them, look, you can get a, a book is just the best deal ever in terms of how you can get content because uh, someone spends a lot of time synthesizing everything they know into a book, and it's it's just a very very uh, affordable thing. So I uh, one of the reasons I created that book and made it so affordable was so that companies could get a lot of them. So I'm really glad that Jack got them, that his his team is benefiting from them, and I encourage uh, others to do the same. I think we covered pretty much everything that I wanted to say during the show. I just finished my morning writing on the moral case for fossil fuels. You should definitely do an Amazon search moral case for fossil fuels. Um, we got some rumblings within the industry not uh, where people are saying, you know, book buyers and whatnot are saying, oh, we're not going to buy that book because it's so unacceptable to have a title called moral case for fossil fuels. So I encourage the newsletter uh, members uh, to to buy some and now it's in number one in oil and energy so definitely keep that going uh, nobody is gonna if this book sells well if it's publicized nobody's gonna not carry it nobody's gonna ignore it they're gonna have to you have to pay attention to it so make sure to do that get on our newsletter industrialprogress.com uh, you'll see the subscription box and uh, besides that you know ha have a great weekend uh, as always, questions, comments, love mail, and hate mail, email alex at alexepstein.com. Uh, next week, we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.